today I want us to focus on something else. I want us to look at the scripture and encouragement and difficult times and times of upheaval and disruption of our own lives. I want us to take a look at the book of James. And I'm going to open begin with the first chapter of here. And we're looking at what James talks about the trials and triumphs that come about when we face difficult times. You know, there's an old expression, I'm sure you've heard it before, that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. The question for today is, do you look forward to trouble? How many of you look forward to trouble, get up and, yeah, today I want to have trouble in my life? Today I want us to look at the book and, and look at this, the thing and, and, be, and to do a little bit of a background understanding of it before we start about this small letter. It's a very small letter. Yet it's a very great message. It's a great book in God's Word. In fact, uh, some think that it may have been one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. And yet Martin Luther, who was the leader of the Reformation movement, who broke away from the Church of Rome, he became known for his emphasis on salvation by grace through faith, and he didn't think so much of the book of James. He said, he called this the epistle of straw. I don't think he understood it. He disliked the letter because it proclaimed that salvation is more than belief. It's something that's more substantial and yet he felt he had no substance or solid doctrine, and I think he was so wrong in that. And he's, he was in his error in underestimating the spiritual depth of the author and of the message. I think it's important to know a little bit about the person who wrote a book and the circumstances under which he wrote it, enabled to understand maybe why he wrote it. But if you know anything about the author, the author of the book of James introduces himself in this way, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God. And some of the other ones use a different expression, the translation from the Greek doulos as slave of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I grew up with Jesus. We worked in the carpenter shop together. We went fishing together. He doesn't say that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Imagine having Jesus as your older brother, having to walk in the shadow of that individual. I wonder what their relationship was like as they grew up. <clears throat> you go back in the book of Matthew in chapter 13, 55, and you find there that he's listed kind of the first among the four half-brothers of Jesus. John chapter 7, the gospel there says that James... And Jesus' other brothers didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. And Mark tells us that as Jesus began his ministry, the crowds began to gather around him, and his family traveled to Capernaum to take and kind of wrestle him, to hope to get him back home because they believed that he was out of his mind. The next time we find James mentioned, really, is in the book of James, uh, book of Acts, in the first chapter, verse 14. It says that they all joined constantly in prayer along the women, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Something had happened 
to change him from thinking that Jesus was crazy to, to the point of being a believer, hanging out with the apostles. And what was it that caused that change? Well, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you find there that there's a bit of an answer to what made that change. Paul, when he wrote there to the Corinthians, he said, where I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, and that, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them who were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. He's not talking about James the Apostle. He's talking about James and then to all the Apostles. In the rest of the New Testament, we see that this person became one of the key leaders in the early church. It was James who seemed to preside over the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And in Acts chapter 21, we see him welcoming Paul back from his third missionary journey. And when Paul refers to him also in the book of Galatians, as a pillar of the church. This individual witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The church's beginning and its growth and power of the Holy Spirit. He knew firsthand the persecution that came on the church and its leaders. And he knew the meaning of trials. Church tradition tells us that he actually had a nickname. Anybody know it? He was known as Old Camel Knees. Because church history by Eusebius says that he, he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple, and he was frequently found on his knees in prayer. There in the midst of people who were hostile towards him and towards the gospel, he was praying for them, praying for their forgiveness, so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of its constantly bending them in worship to God and asking forgiveness for people. Tradition also says that he died a martyr's death, that he was thrown from the temple, and then his opponents went down and they beat him to death with clubs. He lived and he died for the gospel. This is the man who wrote the words of the book that we, we want to look at, a changed man, a humble man, a leader, and yet a man of action and of prayer who literally gave his life for the gospel. James, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. His audience, the initial audience he spoke to was the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And more than likely, his, his audience were aimed towards those early believers who came out of Jerusalem after the persecution by Herod, who were scattered as Paul or Saul at this time started to bring persecution upon the church. And as they went all throughout the different region, James still cared for them. And he tried to reach out to them and his audience. And he wrote to them, to those who were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and different parts. Refugees. People who had left homes, jobs, everything. More likely it was written probably about before 50 AD. And the reason for that, that writing 
He wrote to those early believers who were not all that different from you or from me. People who lived in a world then faced intense pressures, many who scattered from their homes because of persecution. When you start talking and working with refugees, we understand the meaning of persecution as well. But they faced increasing pressure to let faith simply reside in their head, just to hide it away, to keep their thoughts to themselves, and not to let their faith be shown in their life and the way that they lived. He beckoned these first believers to let that pressure push them deeper into the journey. And he wrote to them to say that they owed an allegiance to Christ. And he wrote to them to tell them that what a mature Christian looks like, how a mature Christian handles trials, deals with temptation, controls his anger, thinks about wealth, controls his tongue. And, and he didn't sugarcoat in any of the things that he wrote to them as he looked into this book. Today, I want to consider how James invited believers to open their lives to the truth of God's word and learn how to respond positively to the testing and trials that come our way. First thing he says, face trials bravely with a joyful attitude. He says, consider it a pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops per perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's a goal connected with each trial we face. And that goal is for us to become mature, complete, not lacking in anything. I'm not talking about worldly material things but about something that lasts much more. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Jesus showed that from the very beginning in his walk through three and a half years. He showed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suffering was shown in, in Paul, who expected the same as a follower of Christ. Suffering was shown the same in Peter, who warned the believers of the coming persecutions. He said, don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange was going to happen to you. The truth prepares us for all kinds of suffering. His warning about focusing about the things of life is that it sometimes can destroy us in ways we don't expect. He wrote to them and he talked about worries about the dollar of life. He said, brothers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but those who are rich should take pride in their low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers. The plant, its blossom fails, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Oh, so quick, you see people who are powerful or wealthy suddenly are destroyed. The truth prepares us for all kinds of sufferings. James also gives a solution to face the trials in two steps. He says, the first thing you've got to do, ask God for his wisdom. He said, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, and that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. He didn't say, if you lack wisdom to handle your, your trials, study philosophy, <clears throat> go pick up the latest self-help book, or meditate, or seek advice from someone you think is wise. Don't go to Dr. Phil or some other guru. He did not say anything like that because the wisdom that we need, the wisdom that we must have to turn our trials into triumphs eternally is available only from God and from his word and from faith in Christ. Who are we to ask? We are to ask God, he says. And the Greek word that says we are to ask the giving God. What a description, the giving God. God is like... God is like a father that loves his kids. If a father loves his kids and the kid comes and asks something for them that they need, the father is going to say yes, right? He doesn't say, no, I don't want to give that to you. Go away, don't bug me. In the same way that God gives generously to all, he will give his wisdom to us as well. And he doesn't find fault with us. He doesn't say, I don't think you're worthy of that. God doesn't say that when we make a request of him that, that he's not going to give it to us because he doesn't think it's worth it, worthy of it. And the second thing he says, we need to ask in faith expectantly. That's a condition connected to God giving us the wisdom to handle the trials. We must ask believing and not doubting. James says the one who asks doubting is like a wave of the sea up one moment and down the next. Believing and then doubting. Ever been out in a boat and the sea up like this way and down that up? What happens? Nothing pleasant. <laughs> you get pretty sick. And that's the thing is that if we ask doubting, we're going to be pretty sick in the long run. This individual who is always torn by inner conflict. The person who has trouble accepting God's promises often can be because of things in the past. A person that could have been hurt, taken advantage of, they can believe, cannot believe that God has something better for them because all they can see are trials and they have lost trust in people and they lose trust sometimes in God. When Peter took his eyes off Jesus, remember out there in the water and see you Galilee, what happened? He started to sink. Jesus said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off of me? And when we ask doubting, we find ourselves sinking beneath the waves of despair and hopelessness as we face life's trials. And James is saying, keep your focus on Christ where it belongs. Keep your eyes on him and what God has done through him for you. It's an incredible promise that God has given us. He promises us 
to give us the wisdom that we need to see our trials as a cause for rejoicing. Sometimes that's hard to, to grasp that. And that's how Paul was able to endure the trials of various kinds that he faced, such as beating and hunger and stoning and nakedness and prison, chasing out of city after city after city. Now we may ask ourselves, well, why ask for wisdom when we're going through trial rather than just ask for deliverance? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to say, God, just get me out of this mess? For this reason, we do not waste the opportunity that God has given us to mature. Are we any better than Christ? Are we any better than the earlier apostles who faced hardship and persecution and difficulty? Because, as he said, the persecution of and the face trials because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Trials come in many ways like a refiner's fire. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver, and the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And it's, it's a picture that's sometimes difficult to understand. And I, I read about a woman who read this verse and puzzled about it, and she wondered what goes on in this whole process. And so she went and she visited the silversmith, and she watched him. And he took a piece of silver and he would take it and he'd hold it over the fire and let it heat up. And he explained that in the refining of the silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flame was the hottest. And that way it would burn out all the impurities. And she began to think about how God often places us in some very, really hot spots. Sometimes we don't really want to be. She thought again about the verse. And she asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time that the silver was being refined. And he said yes. He not only had to sit there holding the, the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on it all the time. Because if he left it a moment too long, the flame would actually destroy the silver. The woman thought for a moment and then she asked him, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? He looked at her and he said, oh, that's easy. It's when I see my image clearly in it. Consider it pure joy that God uses trials to purify us. Be patient and endure and wait for God's image to be reflected in us during trials. Second thing, realize that trials make us stronger. Verses 3 to 4 gives us a reason we need to be joyful in the midst of trials. The furnace of suffering reveals our approval before God. Suffering is a trial. And in verse 3, he calls it testing, the act of proving the worth of something. The furnace of suffering produces endurance that results in great joy rather than simply getting through it. 
Endurance isn't the final goal. The goal is maturity and completion in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks very similar. and He says about the God works through all things that come into our lives for our good. And the greatest good is for us to be more Christ-like. We learn many lessons as we grow up. And we're not born with all the knowledge and skills already in place. We learn through trial and error. Little children learn. They learn to master skills one after another. They learn from the point of how to feed themselves, how to crawl, how to walk, how to run, to talk, how to take care of themselves and many other things. And, and as parents, when we grow up, we, we enjoy watching children grow and mature. And as we look back in our, our books, our scrapbooks, our phones, whatever else now, and, and we see the record of that progress. And we're amazed. because they have to develop skills themselves. Imagine the tragedy when children would remain physically unable to develop. Imagine the tragedy when children are unable to feed themselves, to bathe, to take care of the needs, to develop, to become mature individuals. Imagine if we never tried to walk again after the first time we fell down. Imagine if we didn't respond to trials in that way, that God has given to us the opportunity to grow and develop our full potential. God's goal for our life is spiritual maturity, and he accomplishes this through the testing of our faith, through perseverance and patience. That's one of the purposes of the trials we face. The demands of life, and let's face it, the demands of life can wear us down. If we were to take and list the demands that we face, we might say, well, it's work, it's the physical things, growing old, taking care of housing, taking care of family, taking care of relatives, caring for this and that, social things, responsibilities, deadlines, pressures, etc. Dealing with difficult people daily. They can be abrasive, they can be cutting, and at the end of the day, we can be feel completely worn down and cut down. But remember, in all of that, God doesn't seek to destroy us. He seeks for us to come through that, refined and strong. Third thing we need to remember is that victory is at the finish line. Keep your eyes on the prize. Look for what for Jesus who is waiting to welcome us. Think of the, the account in Acts. The first martyr, Stephen, when he was being stoned, you know, for his faith, speaking out boldly against the, the mob. And as they stoned him, and he looked up into heaven, and he could see Christ waiting for him. Remember the more immediate earthly prize is that we will be blessed. And that's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitude. It means a state of inner peace. And it's a joy that is real, independent of the external circumstances of life. Our blessing doesn't simply come when we die and we go on the other side of the grave. Our blessing can be now as well. True, lasting, unmovable contentment. That's what we really want 
And the end prize, verse 12, was blessed is a man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, the wreath of victory that God will place on the head of his children. Eternal life with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in their heavenly home. But we don't receive that simply just waiting around. We receive that by persevering, by being faithful, by not doubting, by acting in a way that shows Jesus Christ living our life, that his image can be seen clearly reflected in our lives. How do we receive that? By enduring, by persevering, by passing the tests. It's all about the journey, not just the destination. You ever travel with kids, you've undoubtedly heard the old saying, are we there yet? Well, spiritually immature people are always impatient and they easily quit. Spiritually mature people, on the other hand, are patient, persistent. They have a stick to that weathers the storm of adversity and disappointment. Endurance cannot be attained by reading a book, attending a class, listening to a sermon, or praying. It's one thing to know what to do. It's quite another to actually do it. We have to go through the difficulties of life, trust God, and obey him. And each time we trust God during a difficult time, our faith grows, and we learn to have patience, and we learn to, not to demand from, but to wait on the Lord for his blessings. That old saying from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not faint. Teach us, Lord, teach us, Lord, to wait. There's a story, I'm sure you may have heard it at one point, about the, the ant and the straw. We call the ant Bernie. Not, not Aunt Bernie, but Aunt, his name is Bernie. <laughs> and this little ant felt just totally unappreciated, just one of the millions of ants, overburdened and overworked. And one day he was asked to carry a large piece of straw back to their nest. And he had to take the stretch, a long stretch of concrete, is where the path led. And that straw seemed so long and so heavy on his little old back that he was staggering beneath the weight and he felt like he wouldn't survive. The stress of his burden began to overwhelm him. And he, he started to worry about the whole thing. It's just, why am I doing this? What, is it worthwhile, all this thing? And he's going on complaining to himself. And all of a sudden, he come along with a big crack. How am I going to get across there? Oh, man. All of this is nothing. Oh. There's no way of getting around that deep divide. What am I going to do? Oh, the burden. Oh. Put that burden down, they realized that burden was no longer a burden. That burden had become a bridge. And he walked safely across that crack to the other side. The heavy load had become a helpful bridge. And the burden that he carried had become a blessing. The question is not, will we face trials of various kinds in our lives? We already have and will again. The question is, how will we view the trials 
that come upon us. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. And if we live only for the present and disregard the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. We will all face seasons of suffering, believers and unbelievers alike, and yet none of us will experience the full weight of suffering as Jesus experienced it. He experienced sufferings so that he could ultimately redeem our suffering. And through Christ, suffering can actually become a means of joy. The question is, what is your response? What's my response to sufferings and troubles that come our way? It reveals something about our hearts. Do we trust in the goodness of God? Is our faith one that is strong enough to endure the furnace of suffering? If you're suffering, know that God is inviting you to trust his goodness. If you're not presently suffering, then this is the time to develop a robust theology of suffering. And don't be surprised when God calls you to use it. Embrace trials with a joyful attitude. Realize trials make us stronger. They become the refiner's fire. And remember, victory is at the finish line. Let's not turn our burdens into, into something that we discourage us, but turn the burdens into bridges and trials into triumphs. Look ahead as we continue the journey with joy. Jesus is urging us onward step by step realizing that at the end of that journey, the crown awaits those who succeed. God bless us. And may God bless this congregation as you struggle through the difficulties and the troubles, recognizing that this is a time for refiner's fire as well.